Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. The thing for music with me is that it's connection. And that's kind of a thread with moving into what I do now, which is you know, coaching. I connect with people and I used to do it through music and now I do it through personal development and podcast and coaching and things like that. Everything comes down to mindset. And I know that that's like, I've heard people talk about how like mindset is this buzzword in the personal development industry and it's a buzzword for a reason. The most important part. Really, it's all about connection, whether that's through coaching or through a melody or through a, like an energetic, authentic live performance. It's about that connection. Connection, connection, connection. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Preston Pugmire. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Preston Pugmire. So I wanted to have Preston on the show because he's figured out how to become a super successful entrepreneur, coaching the top 1% of the best of the best while remaining a devoted dad and husband. Sit back and relax and enjoy this outstanding interview with Preston Pugmire. Preston, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's it's good it's good to be here. You know what, man? I am super pumped because today I get to turn the tables on you and interview you instead of the other way around like we did on your podcast. So welcome to the show officially. Thank you so much, man. This is, it's exciting. We do this in the same week. We interview each other. It's good. I know, I know, I know. You know, here's what I think we should do. I think we should kind of chunk the show into three parts. I think the first one we'll do is we'll talk about the science of achievement and maybe how you help people gain clarity on what they want in business and in life. And then in the second part, we'll talk about the art of fulfillment and maybe some things that you do personally to increase your level of fulfillment. 
and then we'll wrap with some rapid fire questions. Cool? I am all in. All right. So I think a great jumping off place would be to maybe start with religion. You know, everybody says you got to talk about religion and politics, right? So we're going we're gonna to start right there. Can you maybe paint a picture for us of what it was like growing up in Rexburg, Ohio, where the Idaho. entire, I, I'm sorry, Idaho, not Ohio, Idaho. Idaho. Yeah. Well, I was going to say where the entire town is almost a hundred percent, maybe 95% Mormon. So in other words, what was your world like, let's say from ages 10 to 15 in that town, and maybe you can kind of compare it to how that's different for you now, if it is. Well, I mean, I, I still live in Rexburg, Idaho, but I have the difference between me at 10 and 15 versus now is that I've been all around, you know, North America and all. I, <laughs> I spent so much time traveling the country and I've seen so many different things and I've been exposed to so many different things. And so I guess the difference now is just that. I have more to draw on, just like uh, anybody. But that's really interesting that you start with this. I am, yes, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Our nickname is Mormons, but I never lead with that, like ever, because it, uh, people have this idea, even now, like people listen to this podcast, they have this idea of what somebody who's religious is or what somebody who's a member of this church is. And I feel like I don't get a, like a fair shot before somebody like judges me on that way. You know what I mean? But it is a big part of my life and a big part of my family. Um, let me, I'll tell you this. Growing up, I actually served a two-year mission for the, for the church. And I served in Los Angeles, California. And I got offered drugs more times as a missionary for the church than I did when I was in my high school like going through high school. So that's like kind of a paint the picture of, <laughs> you can draw your own conclusions there for, for what that looks like. But uh, I actually loved growing up here and I love living here. It's such a quaint little town. I love traveling. I love um, performing and coaching and doing all the things that I do as I travel around to different areas. But I like living here because I go to the grocery store and like I know everybody. There's this kind of quaint hometown feel. But uh, honestly, I don't know how much longer I'll live here because it's so cold. It's just so cold, man. And so, <laughs> I want to dig in a little bit, if you're cool with it. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, religion. And here's why. So I've interviewed uh, Lewis Howes about his religion. He was raised uh, Christian science. Mm-hmm. And I've interviewed Lori Harder about hers. And she was raised Jehovah Witness. And sometimes in religions and I'm going to do the best I can not to be politically incorrect. And if I am, you can just feel free to just, you know, tell me to go scratch somewhere. But I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm understanding how this has impacted your life. Because, you know, let's be honest, if you are somebody who's raised on the, you know, the West Coast in Idaho in a town that's 95% Mormon, your frame of reference is going to be radically different than mine growing up in, you know, Queens, New York in, you know, a Catholic Italian, my mom's Italian environment. So I really think that that informs sort of who we are, you know, and it's interesting to me when you say that, you know, you go to LA and you're getting people that are, you know, asking you for 
drugs. And that must have been, you know, radically foreign for you. So like, how do you think that, you know, being a Mormon has shaped how you're looking at things now in your life? In other words, are you, are you, because you're still in the same town and everyone around you is a Mormon, do you feel like you're in a fishbowl and you can't see the difference or, or having gone away, you can see, wow, this is like the way we do things here is very, very differently than the way, you know, people around the country do things. Well, I mean, I, I feel like I was in a fishbowl and I feel like, I mean, honestly, if, if you grow up in Queens and you never, ever leave Queens, then you're in that fishbowl. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody is in these different little pockets, uh, even though the fishbowls are so different from each other. But I definitely, definitely had my eyes kind of like open to how other people did things when I went and lived in Los Angeles for two years. I actually spoke Vietnamese and I served and, and taught the, the gospel to the Vietnamese people in Los Angeles. And so that was even so much different from Western culture. And it's just fascinating learning about those different cultures, different religions. The majority of them are, are Buddhist and they have the Eastern you know, frame of mindset and all those different things. And so I was exposed to a lot of that. But I think the thing that really, really made the biggest difference for me is right after I got married 10 years ago, I decided that I wanted to be a successful musician. And I found this path, which was college and university touring. And I was actually really successful in that, became the top booked musical act in the country for university and colleges. And it was really, really awesome. But I so over the course of like four years, I played five or 600 colleges or universities all around the country. And me and my wife just got in a car and drove. So we'd put 200,000 miles on the car in just like three years and visited 46 states and played you know 600 shows. And every single town that we would go to, we would ask the people, what do I need to do to experience this town? And it was everything from you need to go to this restaurant or you need to go to this like club to see this band or you need to go to, there's like this little train car elevator that goes up the side of this mountain. You know, every little thing in different little towns and, and in big towns too. And we, we just experienced the country. I think that that is the main thing that just shifted my perspective with talking to so many people. We would have dinner with somebody every single night from the university and so you're sitting down every single night for four years with somebody else and gaining all these different perspectives. And one of the things that my religion and my church really, really hammers in to our brains and our spirits is that every single person is your brother and sister. Every single person, regardless of their background, regardless of their religion, we are all brothers and sisters. And so that framework allows me to approach this entire process from a, like a judgment-free zone, you know, like, man, we're all brothers and sisters. We have these different backgrounds, but we have this commonality because we're all children of God. And so from that space, I can look at somebody with love from the jump. And I feel like that is one of the, my favorite things. And one of the most important things that I learned in my religion growing up. And it really set the tone for what I do now uh, with connection through coaching and through mindset shifting and all those different things when I work with entrepreneurs because I can approach every single thing with love and instead of judgment. 
And what I wanted to talk to you about was you got your first guitar at 15. And that sort of led into you becoming more involved in like alternative rock bands, et cetera. Can you tell me about the moments you got your first guitar? I got a guitar because of my dad. My dad, so my parents split when I was like eight or nine. And then when I was 14 or 15, my dad decided that he was going to learn how to play the guitar because he just wanted something new to do and stuff. And I saw that and my dad is my hero. And so I was like, I want to be like him. So I asked for a guitar for my birthday too. And we started playing together. We were actually in a band together for a while. And that was really fun. But because I had more time and because I had a younger, pliable mind, I don't know, I, and I really had just kind of like a natural tendency for music. And I surpassed, I surpassed him very quickly with skill levels on the guitar. And I started playing all the time with my friends. And then I got into Radiohead and Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana. And I got these books that taught me how to play their songs. And all of a sudden, it just became my entire world. And I remember one very, very specific moment. I was, <laughs> this will date me too, but I had a subscription to a VHS cassette delivery system that every month they would send you a VHS that had the top 10 music videos for alternative rock and you would mm. watch it on your VCR. Like that mind, that, that concept is just going to blow people's minds if they're under the age of 25. And I remember watching this video and it, had, it was of Radiohead's Just... And the music video for that and the song, I watched it and I seriously got excited and mad at the same time. I was excited because I was aware of it and it just lit me up. And I was a little bit mad because I was like, nobody told me about this. I didn't even know that this existed in the world. And I had to seek it out from like the back of a magazine catalog. And I had this transcendent moment where I became part of the music and it just really connected with me. And I thought, if I can be a part of this for somebody else, that's what I want to do. This moment of like just getting lit up about something. And so I started writing songs and I started performing all the time. And the thing for music with me is that it's connection. And that's kind of a thread with moving into what I do now, which is you know coaching I connect with people and I used to do it through music and now I do it through personal development and podcast and coaching and things like that. But I just, when I played the guitar and I connected with an audience, there's nothing better than that, man. I, I absolutely just thrive in that environment. Yeah, I can't even, I can't even imagine because I can't even play the drums. Like I can't even bang. Like I just, I don't, <laughs> have that skill set. And and this is not for lack of trying. I mean, I really, really wanted to. And you know, I'll tell you something. I, uh, for a while, as a kind of a, a creative outlet, I decided I wanted to get into uh, DJing. And That's right, yeah. And that sort of led into um, music production for me. And if you don't know where middle C is on the piano, then you're not going to be producing anything. And because I didn't take time as a kid... My parents didn't encourage it. I didn't get some basic musical 
you know, training and background. And so as an adult in my, you know, late forties, trying to understand how to do this was not easy at all. So I strongly encourage parents listening to get their kids into music and at least expose them so that they can have the gift that you have now. You, you agree, right? I, yeah, I, I love playing music and I'm really good at it. I love writing songs and I love just playing live in front of people. I don't do it very often anymore, but ooh, it is just, it's my first love, honestly. It's a rush, I bet. So you were in, uh, you were in bands like ATM, National Holiday. Did any of that create a conflict for you, either in terms of your faith or in terms of, you know, how you should be viewed? Was it, was there ever a point where it was like, you know, being in a rock band is not consistent with the identity, which is, you know, you and I talked about identity, right? Were you having, you know, any issues like that for you? You know, that's such a fascinating question. And yeah, I was in rock bands and punk bands and stuff, but the way that we acted was still in alignment with the values of the church and our lyrics were always in alignment with the values of the church. And so we, we were not Christian rock bands. We were not Christian punk bands, but it just wasn't out of alignment. And so the the thing that was a struggle for me as far as identity goes was not being in the bands or or being involved in music, but it was thinking that I could do that as a career. I think the thing that was most dissonant within my spirit was this idea that that was somehow not in alignment with what it meant to be a husband and a father. And when I shed that, and it was difficult, man, because it's like shifting my identity. When I shed that and decided that not only was it possible, but it was that it could be in alignment with my values, six months later, I was the number one booked act in the country on the university and college circuit. Like it happened so quickly when I just decided that I didn't need that identity anymore. And it was, that to me was my first experience with the law of attraction and identity shift and mindset. And it was just, it set the tone for everything. So you're still in uh, Rexburg now and you have two, you have two children. Yes. How has your music background impacted the kind of work that you're doing now? I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but I think that it has to do with connection. And the way that I, the, the things that I'm doing now, it was, it was eh, like a transition. I started out, you know, just playing music solo. So I, I wasn't in bands anymore after I got married. It was just me and an acoustic guitar and a looping pedal. And I continued to play music, but then we had children intentionally, like we said, decided, okay, we're going to start a family six years after we were married. And when we did that, I took my shows and intentionally cut them in half. I started to find less and less fulfillment in just performing, like only doing that night after night. And I wanted to travel less. And so I started actually just kind of toying with speaking in my shows. Like I would talk about personal development. I would talk about like, for example, I have a song that I wrote about my journey through my parents' divorce, my, my journey through emotionally kind of dealing with the fallout of that. And I wrote this song and then I would tell this story on stage and 
invite people to recognize that things that they have gone through, no matter what it is, but if it has been emotionally you know, traumatic for them, that they can come out the other side having learned an important lesson. And that was kind of the message of the song. And I started talking about that. And I realized that when people would come up to me and talk to me after the show, it started to be less and less about music and more and more about my message. Then from there, I started creating actual keynote addresses around mindset and around communication. I started presenting those at uh, you know, for university students, but also for corporations and companies and then you know, youth leadership organizations and, and things like that. And then I would use my music to support the principles. And so it ended up becoming like 50 minutes of, of those personal development principles and then 15 minutes of music interspersed throughout the, the, the presentation. And then I just started doing more and more of those. And then it just lended, lent itself to launching a podcast and then it lent itself to doing coaching. And it was like this kind of transition. And now when I do keynote addresses for corporations or things like that, I will still bring my guitar and I talk about these other principles of mindset before strategy, but I do it in kind of the context of music because that's my background. So that's kind of how it shaped everything that I'm doing now. But really, it's all about connection, whether that's through coaching or through a melody or through a like an energetic, authentic live performance. It's about that connection. Part of one of the things that you're doing is you're helping people free themselves from shame and guilt and perfectionism. Were there any particular experiences that maybe you're willing to share where you felt shame and guilt and perfectionism and maybe describe how you got through it? That's, that's a great question. I'll, tell, I'll talk about this. Um, and this is not about necessarily shame, but it's, it's perfectionism and guilt. When I had children, so my first child, he actually, today is his birthday. We're having his birthday party after this conversation. He's five today. And when I had my first child, Quincy, he, man, he just changed my life in so many amazing ways. But this is what I found with perfectionism and guilt. I wanted to be the best dad, right? Everybody does. And I had this idea of what that had to look like. And if I wasn't perfect at that, then that would bring the guilt. And one of the things that wasn't involved in the idea of being a perfect dad was traveling so much. And so I would feel this guilt about traveling. And after a couple of years, I recognized this in myself. I had this actual really, really specific moment where I was thinking, you know, I used to have, I used to make a lot of money playing music. And it's just like an abundance of money. And it was, it was phenomenal. And then right now, uh, I'm not making that much money. And I was thinking about what is the difference? And I was going over a bunch of different things. And then I came to the conclusion that, oh my gosh, it's kids. And it wasn't that children meant that I couldn't make money or that I needed to spend money on them. It was the idea that I had to be a quote-unquote provider. And I had this messed up version in my brain of what that meant. And I, I took myself through this process that I call the rabbit hole of meaning, where you take a situation and then you go down the rabbit hole into the core, core, core of what you have made it 
mean? The meaning that you've attached to it. And I realized that I had attached <laughs> the meaning of being a good dad to anxiety about providing. And that doesn't make any sense when you say it out loud, but this is what I did. I said, okay, I have anxiety about providing for my kids because I just you know, got to put food on the table, right? That old adage. And I have anxiety about that. And that anxiety makes me feel like I'm concerned. And if I'm concerned, then I'm going to work hard. And if I work hard, I'm going to provide and then I'll feel like a good dad. But all of it is tied to the original anxiety. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, so my subconscious is telling me, Preston, you want to feel like a good dad? Well, here you go. Here's some anxiety because that's going to be the trigger for it. And that's going to come with guilt. And, and so I was like, that's just effing ridiculous. And so when I kind of exposed it for what it was, I was able to intentionally shift it and bring it into my consciousness rather than my subconscious and then shift it to, I'm going to attach peace to me being concerned, then to me providing, then to me working hard, then to me being a good dad. And I want to be a good dad. So how about I have intentional, active peace trigger that? And dude, Rob, when I made that decision, <laughs> within three weeks, boom, I had tripled my income. Within three weeks. And it was just fascinating to me. And so I have found that people like my clients and myself, we have this idea of what we should do versus what we want to do. And if those things are out of alignment, then we, I and people that I coach, use either anxiety or guilt as the bridge to get from what we want to do to what we should do. And so we can have the best of both worlds and we use anxiety and guilt as the bridge. And that's what I was doing. And when I shed that, oh, everything changed for me. Oh, that's so amazing. I want to talk about goals now. You are, after you kind of get through, you know, shame and guilt and perfectionism like you're talking about, then, you know, we've cleared the way to talk and help people accomplish their goals. So, Everybody has a different way of goal setting. Everybody's got a kind of a different angle on how they do it. What's the playbook for you on, in your minds, proper goal setting and, and maybe sort of the lens through how you coach people to set goals? Uh, for me, everything comes down to mindset. And I know that that's like, I've heard people talk about how like mindset is this buzzword in the personal development industry. And I think it's, it's a buzzword for a reason, the most important part. And so it's, Clarity first. And so get clarity on exactly what it is you want. And then from there, recognize that the reason that you don't have that right now is because of some sort of subconscious block about something in your mindset. It's, it's a core identity. It's a core belief. It's a limitation. And I call it the emergency break. Like, if you're driving a car and it's just not going as fast as you want it to, so you're like, oh, maybe I need to fill it up with gas. You need to fill it up with gas, same thing. Maybe I need to, you know, all these different things. You can check the brakes, you can check the engine, you can do all this stuff and you get the car running tip-top shape, but that e-brake is fully engaged. You're not going to be able to drive the car. And so many people don't want to take a look at what's really going on, like the actual thing that is blocking them. 
And so when you take a look at that, like for me with the anxiety was attached to being a good dad, then I was able to just release the emergency brake. And then the same amount of effort, which is you're up, you know, pushing the gas, the same amount of effort yields a completely different result. And so for me, I talk to people about goal setting in the context of, okay, what do you want? Okay, now let's go through what are your beliefs about your value as far as it relates to that? And people call it the upper limit principle or you know, limiting beliefs or you know, it, there's all these different ways to talk about it. But bottom line, if you don't genuinely believe that it's possible for you, then it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just it's just really about gaining the clarity that you need to be able to move forward. So are there any particular examples that you can think of or maybe just some approaches that you remember that have helped uh, coach you through some difficult times or different experiences when you were, you know, perhaps not at the peak of confidence or when you were suffering hardships? Um, it's so simple, but I mean, I hired, we, you, you know, Tommy Baker, uh, I yeah. hired him as my personal coach. And one thing he had me do, which is so simple, but I just didn't do it up until that point was write down a list of, you know, 25, 35 big wins that you have had in the last year, in the last 12 months. And I don't know, I had this idea that that would make me feel conceited or something like that. And that's just ridiculous. And so when I did that, it became this big, huge list of evidence that I can just draw on to support the fact that I can accomplish my goals. And he did this really, really cool thing. And I do it with my clients. I do it with me now. When you say like your top three or four biggest accomplishments that you've had in the last in the last year, and then go back two, three years and think to yourself, you know, two, three years ago, did you even think that these things were possible for you? And most often the answer is no. And so if you didn't think they were possible for you, and now not they're not just a possibility, they're in the past as a reality that you've already accomplished, then that tells you, and you can get it really get imbued into your mind and into your heart that the things that you are about to do that seem impossible, that one day, very, very shortly, they will just be your norm and your actual reality. And then it gives you this confidence. And so it's such a simple thing, but I don't think that people do it often enough, really, really use their wins, their recent wins as evidence that they can just do the next thing. I love that. Make a list, a nice, simple list of 25 things that uh, you've accomplished that really, really have moved the needle for you. Yeah. And uh, it creates sort of a little uh, a reframe. That's the word, a little reframe. I love it. Okay, so let's move into the play hard part of the show. This is more about the art of fulfillment. Um, and I want to talk about some things maybe that you do that help you improve areas that are outside of business. What does a typical Saturday morning look like for you? Saturday morning, man, I love getting my kids up. I have a, like a five-year-old now, Quincy, and then I have a two-year-old daughter named Beatrix. And one of my favorite things to do on Saturday mornings is get up and go get a donut. I, it just, it's just a simple thing, but they think that it's you know freaking Christmas morning when they get to just go and 
pick out their very own donut, no matter anything, all the sprinkles, all the whatever. And then they just get to sit and it's their own. Because, you know, I don't give them a donut every single day, but just uh, Saturday mornings, they get to just eat this. And I just love being with happy children. <laughs> and so <laughs> there's just, I love that. there's nothing like it, man. And uh, whether that means uh, creating a, oh, dude, we do pillow forts in the living room all the time. Anytime, anytime I want to be fun dad. Now I understand that that means or that that's not always possible because that they get to have boundaries and stuff like that. But anytime they say, hey, can we build a fort? I'm always a yes. Like I will stop what I'm doing and we will build a fort because dude, it takes 48 seconds and they just love it for the rest of the day. So we do pillow forts. We will flip the couch up on its side and put a blanket over it. And I want to be in relationship where it's a yes, like yes to the world with my children. Yes to possibilities. What can you create? What can you dream? What can you achieve? I love doing those type of things. Love it. If you can live anywhere in a world for the for a month, where would it be and why? Oh man, I would say uh, Grand Cayman, man. Uh, we went there for a honeymoon, and it was just a magical place. Like, there's a reason that people go on vacation there and stuff like that. I know that you, you, you live this jet set life, and I'm I'm on my way there. But you know, it, like. I loved being in Grand Cayman. That to me was so, so fun. So I'd like to go live there for a month. Yeah, you know, listen, Jet Set Life is is great. It's fun. It's amazing. But there are pockets of places that, you know, people would be shocked that I love that have nothing to do with being Jet Set. Um, so you love what you love, you know, because it puts you in the place that you need to be in. So I love that answer. Grand Cayman, Grand Cayman is awesome. What is the one thing that your soul has been really calling you to do, but for whatever reason, you just haven't been able to pull the trigger on it? And you're like, damn, I really want to do this, but I just haven't done it. Write a book. Mm. I'm writing a book. I, I've been talking about the that I, that I'm writing a book for months now. And the, the truth is that I am collecting a bunch of bullet points and ideas and putting them into a Google Doc and I call it writing a book, but <laughs> let's be honest, it's not yet. And so I can, I, I really, really want to write a book called Mindset Before Strategy. And like I already bought the domain and everything like that because I genuinely feel that that is the, the path. Like, because if you don't have, for me in my life and for all the people that I've ever worked with, if you don't have the right mindset to back it up, the strategy will either not work for you or won't be sustainable. And so that's not in alignment with the art of fulfillment. And so I want to just take all of my experiences with personal development and with you know creating a business, uh, not just like a successful music business, but a six-figure coaching business and all these different things and put them into an outlined thing that you can buy on Amazon. <laughs> I just, I really, really want to do that. I've been I've been feeling called to do that. And then I haven't been, I haven't pulled the trigger on it. Love it. If you find yourself uninspired, you mentioned what Tommy Baker uh, recommended for you, but if you find yourself uninspired, other than looking at that list, what sorts of things do you do that help you find your way back? For me, I will sit, just like sit and 
with no <laughs> no agenda, you know what I mean? Like it's not necessarily meditation, but I'll just sit and be like, okay, I'm going to shut down all the tabs in my head because I got so many tabs open all the time. I shut down all the tabs and I'm just going to be for just a minute in silence and I'll have one question that will, and it's not always the same question. It's like, okay, what do I need to allow in my life? What do I know I need to experience? Oh, this, oh, dude, this is it. This is one of the things that really, really gets me. And I do this with my clients too. But for me, I got this from the book, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And you just sit in silence and you ask yourself this one question and you're not allowed to talk until you have taken three big, huge breaths. Like, don't even jump the gun. And you take an elevator from your brain. I take an elevator from my brain through my neck, down into my chest, right next to my heart. And I originate the thoughts from my heart instead of my brain. And I just listen instead of think. I just listen. And I ask myself this question, what's really going on? That's it. It's so effing simple. But if you shut down all the tabs and don't allow yourself to really say anything or write anything or talk or anything until you've taken three huge breaths and you take that elevator down and you just ask yourself, what's really going on here? You know. Mm, that's a really know. good one. I'm stealing that. Do it, man. Take it. Because like, you'll find this. I know but I just either don't want to admit it or I am so clouded by all these things that I feel like I should be doing or whatever. And you just break it down, man. Just simplicity. Simplicity. Well, what's really going on helps you get through the bullshit. Exactly. Yeah, totally, man. And you just, there's no, there's what's really going on means there's nowhere to hide because you can't, you can't use excuses. You can't use all these other different things that we've decided are important that are really masking what's really going on. And so just, yeah, you cut through it all, man. And you can't hide. Well, what's amazing about that for me is that the word really implies that what you're saying is going on isn't. So when you say to yourself, what's really going on? Yeah. Then yeah, your yeah. brain goes, oh, you want the truth, huh? Okay. Uh, oh, we're, oh, that. oh, we're doing that. Oh, oh we're going to do okay. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What restaurants, if you had to go and have your last meal, where would your last meal be? <laughs> do you know what? I, I just love going to... Uh, like Brazilian churrascarias where they bring the meat out on the swords and you have the the uh, hourglass that's either red or green. You, you familiar with this? I have um, I have pounded away many churrascarias. Yes. Yes. Good, good, good. Yeah. So yeah, I there's one. I mean, they're all over the place, but I really like this one called Rodizio Grill. And you just uh, throw that uh, hourglass on green and just let the meat come to you. And uh, the grilled pineapple and everything like that. I, I just love that restaurant, man. Love it. Absolutely love it. Okay, so we're going to hit our third part of the show, which is the rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you would like. It is basically a first thing that comes to mind rounds. 
what would your friends say is one of your superpowers? <laughs> That's a great question. The reason I laugh at that is my best friend, Jake Ballantyne, I asked him that specific question recently. I said, hey, what would you say is my superpower? I, said, I, I love that. And his response that he gave was, Preston, you can take a principle or a situation uh, that you are observing from somebody else and boil it down to actual core, simple like wording and concepts so that they can understand it in a simple, simple way. And so that's what I'd say. Love it. Love it. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? I'm afraid of... <laughs> I'm afraid of stepping into my actual power about what I can do as a coach and as somebody who leads events and... The reason I'm hesitating is because I have been thinking about this so much this last week. And it's just so, like, I get frustrated with myself because I buy into these limitations and these excuses. And I know that I can create just incredible, incredible things. And I already have. But I have this kind of nagging... It's uh, Jess Lively talks about it in the context of your ego's favorite chew toy. Like if the ego is a dog, it'll just always go back to this one chew toy and it'll always chew on this right here, right here, right here. And for me, my ego's favorite chew toy is the fear that more success will equal more responsibility and I won't be able to live up to that. And I have to, like that's for me, it's something that I just have to consistently and constantly remind myself that it's not, a real fear unless I make it a real fear. And so I can just let that go. Love that. You're gaining clarity there. Mm -hmm. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Who's your favorite WWE superstar? No, nobody yeah. ever asks me that. And it's just like, I don't know, man. I feel like they deserve to know, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What book have you re-listened to the most or reread? It's probably a toss-up between Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey mm -hmm. and the You Are a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero. Mm, she's so good. Love her. Yeah. What's the one thing you, you should probably throw out, but you never will? I have a, a woodworking piece. It's a joiner that I bought and it's in my garage and I should probably throw it out. But, but, but you I, never will. I, dude, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And then the last question is we're going to change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? I would like to ask you. Well, I mean, I asked you a bunch of questions just earlier this week. So let me think. Okay. How about this? I, I would like your listeners to hear the answer to this question that I did ask you because I've been thinking about this so much. And it is, I asked you, what is the thing that you feel like you're going to need to leave behind in 2019 as you move into 2020. Yeah, I have the answer to it. I didn't have the uh I didn't have the answer to it when I um when I spoke to you the other day, but I have the answer to it now and that is um the belief that I belong. So it's kind of to your point a minute ago where you where you were talking about, you know, you had there was some anxiety or fear stepping into your power power phrasing what you said, but you get mm -hmm. the idea. 
for me, it is um, because I'm entering into a new world now. Podcast is growing quite a bit. The mastermind is filling up. You know, I'm on bigger stages, let's say. And there's a little doubt that starts to creep in. Do I belong here? Like, am I really the guy, you know, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So what I'm letting go is the belief that I don't belong anywhere. And wherever I want to be, I belong. So anytime that thing creeps in, I just say to myself, I belong here. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. I love it. Well, listen, man, this has been a fun hour. I really appreciate everything. Um, is there any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Uh, dude, I want you to listen to my podcast. It's called Next Level Life. And it is personal development for entrepreneurs and getting into what, re- what it really, really takes to level up your mindset so that you can level up your business. And the thing that I love about podcasts is things like this. You get to have these incredible conversations and then you just talk on a microphone and thousands and thousands of people listen to you. And it's rad. Uh, when we... <laughs> something that I didn't really talk about uh, uh, as, we, as we had our interview is when I launched my podcast, um, it was probably the biggest like jump I've ever taken as far as creating a a space to accomplish your goals and then willing it into being. I told people a month before I launched that I was going to debut at number one in the world on iTunes. And people were like a little worried for me. And it was just like, dude, I want you to let yourself down there. You're getting in there with some big fish. And I never didn't think that that was going to happen. I just didn't. So in my category of personal development on iTunes, I mean, it's a friggin' people like Lewis Howes, Oprah, Gretchen Rubin, you know, uh, they're all in this category. And I knew that it was possible. And so I created it. And I actually debuted at number one in the world on launch day. And the podcast has been just my favorite thing because it leads to all the other things. And so uh, I love it when people listen to it, man. And I know that you have a successful podcast and I'm honored to be able to be on here and talk to you. And yeah, podcasting is so great, man. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And we're going to link all that up in the show notes. Well, Preston, thank you so much. And uh, as we are recording this, it is the holiday time of the year and I wish you and your wife and beautiful children uh, nothing but uh, happy holidays. (laughs) You too, my brother. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.